Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Rocks Across the Pond. It's a curling podcast and uh, we, we have not talked to you for a while. It's been a it's been a busy summer here at Rocks Across the Pond and we haven't really had time to to even think about curling. By we, I mean me. We'll uh, find out if my co-host has had time this summer to think about curling. We'll bring him on right now. Uh, joining me from Southampton, England, our professor of Peel, Dr. Jonathan Havercroft. Jonathan, how much thought have you given to curling so far this summer? Uh, none. Or well, actually today I got a text message and I have to order my England kit for the world next, so... Oh, that's a good day. I guess it's an exciting day. And then I was like, oh, I've been drinking too much beer. I may not fit into that kit if I don't cut back on the beer. So that was my, uh, <laughs> that's the extent of, that's the amount of thought that I put into curling. Uh, so, it's, so it sounds like you're ex- enjoying your summer. I'm having a good time. Yeah. Yeah. I was up, up in London last week, uh, going to Durham this week. And next week I'm going to Berlin. So getting to travel around the place a bit. Marks are all in, so no more teaching. So, yeah. I saw that Southampton is one of the hosts of the Cricket World Cup. Have you made it to any Cricket World Cup games? No. Do you plan on making it to any Cricket World Cup games? No. Why not, man? If something that if something that big came to the city I lived in, like if Richmond, Virginia somehow hosted some crazy international World Cup event like that, I'd go. Uh, I guess so. I kind of it's a, I don't well the the truth is I don't understand cricket well enough and then all my English friends who are into cricket Neither do I. Don't, they don't want to take a newbie. They're like I would ruin their their enjoyment. So so I never get to, I could just go by myself, I guess. Yeah, you could. You'd have no idea what was going on, but you'd probably have yeah. a general idea of, I mean, that's kind of my way when, when it winds up on television, it's like, oh yeah, I have a general idea of what's going on here, but <laughs> they were excited when that one thing happened. So apparently that was important. It's, it's not too far off baseball, but, uh, it's different. We have a guest. Should we bring our guest on? We should. Our guest played cricket. Oh, really? I gotta say, he does have a cannon of an arm. I will, I will vouch for that. Having watched him throw a mini Nerf football around Finland. So, do you want to introduce him since you know him much uh, better I than will. I do? All right, it's the long promise. He's actually appeared on the podcast before, uh, making fun he of did, Brian very briefly. So, uh, and we've decided to finally bring him on uh, after. Kind of fulfilling one of our promises from earlier in this year through the Twitter voting that the fans demanded that someone from Team Sugden come on the podcast. So we've selected Felix Price. So welcome to the podcast, Felix. Thank you very much for having me, Jonathan. And how is your summer going? My summer is going very, very well. Uh, finished curling off and then took a holiday to Hong Kong just to, just to leave curling for a bit. Kind of relax was nice. Uh, and then just been lounging around the house. Not much to do. Were you in Hong Kong when all the protests were happening? Or I, I managed to just miss the protests. So I had a, a, a completely protest-free week in Hong Kong, which was quite nice. All right. And so you've been just hanging around home and uh, getting ready for your curling season. Any any progress there? 
Yeah, the team Sugden, uh, team I play in, we, we set up a home gym, which we are planning to use frequently. Um, I'm the only one to use it yet, but, but maybe we'll get everyone else along. What's in the home yeah. gym? It's a, it's a multi-gym, so it's like has, has everything you need. Uh, mainly legs, which I think our team need to just so we have a bit more power coming out the hacks. Yeah, yeah, because that's clearly the problem our team have. Yeah, you just, guys just can't throw it hard at all. Can't throw it hard at all. Yeah, no. yeah. Wait, do you guys all live together, or what have I missed here? Three of us live in the same town, uh, so we see each other pretty much every single day. Um, but it's Harry who lives further away. But I'm sure because he's just passed his driving test. He can he can drive over and and join us in the gym. So obviously, you guys are a, a junior curling team. How old are you all now? Uh, we are all uh, between sixteen and eighteen. So Archer and I are eighteen. Joe is seventeen, and no, Harry is seventeen as well. Sorry, yeah. So two seventeen-year-olds, two eighteen-year-olds. How old do you have to be to drive in England? Seventeen. 17? Yeah, you got to be seventeen. Okay. Yeah. Okay, it's sixteen here in the states, so I Which was seems, I was a little confused, mm, a little bit inappropriate. Yeah, it's dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> At least it was when I was sixteen. That's for yeah. That's for sure. Um, it is a lot harder driving here too. I'll say, having having made the transition, so it's <laughs> the roads are a lot narrower and a lot twistier. Every time I go back to North America, I'm like, damn, it's easy to drive here. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. <laughs> so felix we're glad you're on the show and one of the reasons that we wanted you to have to be to come on this particular show is we're talking about etiquette and we wanted kind of a younger voice on here to talk about etiquette and kind of what what's important to you and how you feel it should be introduced to people who are who are starting curling and we'll talk about that here uh in a bit after we kind of go over some news here at the beginning but it's good because it's we've got um kind of a wide range of ages and uh and and curling experience here i'm 35 you're obviously a, a junior curler we've got jonathan jonathan you're like what 67 68 now you're retired something, right something Close like that retired, i heard he was nearly yeah. 70 yeah, yeah 70 yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So it's a, yeah, it's a good wide range. So we're going to have. I think it's going to be a good discussion here in a bit. Um, but we do. We haven't talked to anyone in a while. So there's actually been a little bit of news in the curling world, and I kind of had to catch up on it since I have been completely out of the mix in terms of what's going on in the curling world the last month or so. Um, so Jonathan, do you want to go through it since you've obviously been on top of all this stuff? I don't know if I'm on top of everything, but uh, let's see. The I say going in order of what was interesting to me. So Rachel Holman had her baby. Uh, the name of the baby. Congratulations to Rachel Holman. So congratulations there. The name of the baby is, yes. I think it's pronounced Riot, R-I-A-T-T. Uh, cool. So a bit of an unconventional name there. Has Joanne had hers yet? I haven't seen anything on Twitter uh, doesn't mean it hasn't happened. Maybe they're waiting to announce it. Uh, or I, th- I believe her pregnancy announcement was a bit later than Rachel's. So uh, it may be, it's probably soon. I would expect in the next month or so. 
Um, so yeah. So anytime now. Anytime. Now. She's judging by judging by my experience. She has to be just miserable because the very the very end is miserable. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I've never had a baby. Plus, like, especially now, like late June, early July, when it's hot, like we planned, we planned ours very well to where my wife was not pregnant at all when it was warm outside. So I feel like we did, I feel like we did a good job with that, but man, I cannot imagine having to do that when it's hot outside. So, I mean, yeah, so it's, uh, be interesting to see. I think that'll, uh, I, I'll, be, I'll be curious to see that. That's kind of going to be an interesting wrinkle for the team next year. Obviously, there's a lot of teams on tour now that, uh, you know, at least one of the players has had a baby. This kind of, I think, seems to be the the baby year in the Olympic cycle. Um, but uh, that'll kind of... That's why we yeah, have Yeah, you need to take a little break, too. <laughs> <laughs> Get back. Next year, you're going to be chasing the points. So, yeah, good time to have it, right? Exactly. So. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah it'll be so that, that that's i think the for me that was the most interesting news uh, probably the biggest news is the curling world cup is at least suspended and possibly dead so going off the press release in the wcf it sounds like the main partner uh from china kingway sports um did not fulfill all of its financial obligations. And so as a result, WCF has decided to not run the curling world cup this year. This makes me sad. So I guess the check bounced or did they just, they were never mailed a check. I don't know. That was a, I, I mean, you, you worked in sports PR for quite a while and I'm not sure if you've seen the press release, but that was a pretty hostile press release. Not quite Dan. Gil- not quite Dan Gilbert when LeBron late left the Cavs, but basically one notch below. It that. was not in Comic yes, Sans. It was in Comic Sans, but it was pretty hostile, which makes me think that yes, the check bounced. Yeah, that was one of the more to the point and honest press releases I've seen in sports. Like I'm used to the ones that are, uh, you know, kind of kind of beat around the bush and don't really tell you exactly what's going on and leave it uh, up to the imagination. That press release left nothing to the yeah. So it's a funding issue. sounds like so. May, so maybe it means it will come back if they can find another sponsor. Um, and I think we, we've kind of debated back and forth. So I guess we can't really answer. Will it come back? Cause we don't have any Intel on that front, but my my guess is no. I'm just going to guess no. Probably not. I guess the bigger question is, should it come back? I think yes, just because, I mean, it gave a, you know, it gave the U.S. a, a big event on the calendar. Yeah. Felix, did you ever watch the Curling World Cup? Uh, No. No, never, never watched Curling World Cup. So I don't <laughs> think it, you know, it didn't really affect world curling that much. I mean, it wasn't, wasn't the Olympics, wasn't. You know, massive. So, are you going to miss it? No, not at all. Not at all. So, what, what's your go-to not for curling watching then? Um, I watch the Briar every year. Obviously, when the Olympics comes around, got to watch that. Uh, men's and women's worlds, of course. You know, there's there's plenty of stuff to, that you know people can watch. It's it's not like you know it's it's a massive thing that we're losing here. Um, you know, so I I, I 
I wouldn't wouldn't be upset if it didn't come back. All right, so that's a vote against. I, I'm kind of on the fence. So what I liked about it was it created a top line event outside of Canada. So something kind of slam equivalent and have one event in the US, one mm-hmm. in Europe, one in Asia. Uh, that was good, I think. I thought the format was a mess. It made no sense. It also made no sense what countries were invited to it. Um, so I, I think that if the WCF does want to bring it back on, on top of finding a sponsor, hopefully they'll have a big rethink about the format too, and kind of try to create a more interesting event. Cause to be honest, the format was just a snore fest. It was you know, a double round Robin. And then just two teams got in and played in a final. They never really kind of built anything. So, uh, I just didn't like it from a format perspective, to be honest. Yeah, it was weird. And I think it just came. I think it, I think the format came about because they decided from the start how many draws they were going to do and how many teams they were going to uh, invite. And then they shoehorned the format to fix that instead of thinking out, okay, we want to do X, Y, and Z with the format. And then from that, figure out how many teams to invite. Yeah. So there, there may be a space for an event like this, but given the fact that Felix doesn't care <laughs> and, uh, Oh yeah. That's yeah. And, well, I mean, I, I think that's kind of catches the sentiment of the average curling fan that it never, there's not, there certainly are fans who are kind of slam first fans. And there certainly are fans who are kind of season of champions, international competitions, first curling fans. I don't think there's anyone out there who's curling world cup first fan. So, yeah. uh, no, you know, maybe there's space for something, the WCF to do something going forward, but I'm with Ryan on this. It's probably dead. It was probably like a one year trial and, uh, maybe the WCF comes back with something completely different, but I'm skeptical that we're going to see anything else, uh, in this cycle. We've talked about this before. Like the whole point of this event was to get more curling games on television in the U.S. and China. And to that point, this event succeeded. So that was the whole reason this thing came about. So it, it succeeded in the fact that it got, it got curling on television in the U.S. and China. So I don't think it can be viewed as a complete failure. I'm sure it will be viewed that way in Canada um, because... It really didn't get on, it didn't get much TV coverage in, in Canada, and I don't think it got much buy-in from Canada. And I think that was that was probably its primary downfall. Is the WCF? I don't think could get. I don't think the WCF got curling Canada to buy in. Uh, yeah, I think that was part of the problem. Uh, and, and again, I think the format was a bit weird. Like here's where I th- they could have had more buy-in is if they'd made the first three events more regional specific. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, had a European event, maybe a North American bracket with a few other European teams or or Asia Pacific teams invited to round up the field and then uh, an Asia Pacific event. And then the winners got all expenses paid trip to China, say. So that would have cut down on the travel costs. The the fact that teams had to self-fund their travel, that was a big issue. Uh, it was also scheduled at weird times, so trying to run it against the Canada Cup that it automatically took out the top seven or eight teams in both the men's and women's side from Canada, which meant you were at that point going pretty deep down the the order of merit standings to get teams to to fill out the draw. So not getting top 
top name draws there are, there was a bit of a problem. So I think those are kind of the two big problems. And then it's not really clear what it is. Is it playing for your country and then a nation's competition? Or is it uh, basically the WCF trying to do the slams in its own way, uh, playing for money? So that was kind of the other thing. I never really clarified what kind of an event it was. If it's kind of World Curling Federation trying to run a slams type event, then I think you've got to look at having more than one you know, basically filling the field out through order of merit standings, getting the strongest teams in there, getting the best, you know, name brand people in there. If it's a nation's format, then I kind of like going like something along what Ryan proposed at one point with uh, making it kind of like a Davis Cup or team tennis format where the men's, women's, and mixed doubles are all playing together, competing for points. And the best country advances. It needed to have a unique point. Like the, the, reward at the end needed to be unique like the way it was now i i think they were just trying to make it like you said jonathan a slam with flags on the backs of the competitors and that's not going to work i think that if you if you're building towards something grander i think that it, it works in that case um one of my one of the my ideas that i had said earlier was the three teams per um per country per stop the men's team the women's team and the mixed doubles team combining to build points for an end of the season winner the other idea i had was a concept i called the schmirler cup where you have three pods of four teams like in china you would have china korea canada and let's say like germany uh competing you would have another pod of the u.s hosting three other teams um and i'm just going off of the notes that i made about this like the u.s would host a pod with switzerland japan and norway and then you would have a european pod with sweden italy scotland and russia and then the three winners plus the host would play in the grand final but you've got two men's teams two women's teams and a mixed doubles team playing a best of five and have it be bracket style that'd be good yeah and so the, it'd be the country, each country would play, or would it be men's, women's, and mixed doubles advance independently? It would not be independent. It would be country versus country overall. So you'd have best of five with two men's, two women's, and a mixed doubles. Yeah, that, that would probably fly. Although the mixed doubles teams are complaining they're not getting many games if they did that. But if you just drew the mixed doubles teams from the men's and women's teams, uh, that would work, I think, pretty well. What you can you can do uh, so NCAA tennis um, in the USA. So the way they do their tournament is it is best of seven team versus team. Like let's say the University of Oklahoma is playing the University of Georgia for the NCAA tennis championship. The way they do it is best of seven, and it's you have your six singles um, matchups one through six, but then you have what they call the doubles point. So you have three doubles matches going on at once, and whichever team wins, two out of three wins the doubles point, and then you play the six singles matches. Yeah, you could do that too. Yeah. So you could have three. Yeah, you could have three doubles games, and if you win two out of three, you get yeah. the doubles point. I think I think something along those lines, just something to make it different and interesting, if it ever comes back, because it, it could be a question of it just not coming back. Uh, 
Well, and, th- and that kind of raises an interesting question too, right? There's a lot of the associations trying to create these top-down events that don't seem to float. And then you've got a lot of – actually, Europe's got a long history of kind of masters, bond spiels, and uh, kind of other challenger cup type events that maybe – it'd be better off if the WCF and WCT got together and tried to build up the European and Asia Pacific tour, and then maybe had a couple of flagship events that could kind of compete with the slams in terms of strength of field and and just kind of grow it from the base as opposed to trying to create stuff out of nowhere without much of a, a fan base. Yeah. I think that, well, the WCT is doing their Japan tour this year, right? They've kind of built up the, like the Japanese leg are of the world curling tour. I think there's like a separate kind of like the, kind of like in golf, you've got the Asian tour, the European tour. I think they've got a Japan tour of the WCT this year. Yeah. Yeah. And they, they do, they have had a European WCT for a while, but it's, it, it's kind of, kind of is up some years and down other years. It's not really, well-developed yet, I'd say, that perhaps putting a bit more resources and identifying some top-line events in both both regions would would do a better... And then just putting them on TV and having the WCF put it on through their curling TV broadcast might be a better way to, to grow the game. Yeah, that's one of those things, is there's not really a... You know, there, there's not a uniform television plan for curling, You've got, you know, the season of champions obviously is on TSN. The and then sep- there's a separate TV deal for the for the slams, and then for every other tournament, it's basically if they can find a partner that'll put it on YouTube, right? Yeah, and that's I mean that that's kind of the problem because there's you know up, up in Scotland they have the Perth Masters and the, I think it's called the Glenhill Ladies is kind of the women's version of it and those are long-standing spiels like 20 30 years of history top teams have always competed in it and, and I think maybe there'd be a case to be made for for turning that into a televised event somehow and just making sure the field's really strong and that might be a better way of growing the game than just creating something completely new that kind of feels a bit fake and manufactured and doesn't have a built-in fan base. Whereas, you know, having some major tournaments in locations that have a natural tie to curling. So, you know, Perth, Scotland's kind of the home of the WCF, uh, you know, home of curling in a certain sense. It it could kind of almost become a major European event that could compete um, on par with the slams as opposed to just kind of randomly rotating teams into a, a made-for-tv format and it, it may get there because the rest of the world is is catching up in quality of teams and in most importantly in depth but right now there's really no reason for um canadian teams to leave canada unless they're points chasing unless they're chasing ctrs points to try and qualify for for like the the road to the roar event yeah or or some of them give it get appearance money or they just want to go somewhere for fun, right? Like McCruthers last year went to Japan, and I, I think that was mostly for fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think they and I think they got I think they got their trip paid for too. Yeah, and that's actually quite common. That certainly happens. I, I, there certainly were times where USA curling to try and bolster local events would would try to recruit some top flight teams from Europe and Canada to try and get the the strength of field up. Uh, and so, and you know, certainly teams will do that if they're at a certain caliber. It's kind of like a free trip somewhere. 
probably for them, it's probably a relatively easy bond spiel at least to qualify in. And it's kind of a fun way to, to build up points. So there are ways to do it. It'd just be nice to see more resources thrown at that rather than the the manufactured stuff. And then just put it on TV or at least stream it. That would be the, the easiest way to do it, I think. So yeah, the Curling World Cup is dead. Long live the Curling World Cup. Uh, Jonathan, you're Canadian. What do you think of the new residency rules for uh, for Curling Canada? I am going to slide into JM Menard's DMs and ask him if he wants to play with me next year because I'm all of a sudden eligible to play for Quebec again. So... so uh no it's it's an interesting i I was surprised by it i honestly thought we were gonna see residency doom day like i like like a lot of the chatter on twitter by a lot of people who are actually in the know seem to be pushing towards you know anyone go anywhere the age of the super teams you know Botcher power shooting into Nunavut and kind of this doomsday scenario where you have basically 12 provincial or territorial super teams and all the other grassroots curlers are done away with. So the birthright residency rule, which they came up with, basically says you're always eligible to play in the province that you were born in. So I was born in Quebec. So that's why I was making the, the JM Menard joke. So, uh, so basically whatever province you were born into, that's the province you always have eligibility for plus the province, um, you reside in, uh, when you sign up for play down. So basically everyone now has potentially two provinces they could play in plus a third as an import. So that actually gives a fair bit of, flexibility is a fairly clever way to to solve the problem it's going to be interesting to me if you have anything come up where like if someone's family was in the military and suddenly they have um eligibility in the yukon even though they lived there for the first month of their life and then moved away yeah so i mean so one person who's kind of a notorious uh, mover arounder is John Morris. And uh, to be honest, off the top of my head, I couldn't tell you where he was born. Um, he may have been born in, in Ottawa, but his dad was in the military. So there's a good chance he could have been born in, oh, actually, I just found his, his uh, page on Wikipedia. So he was actually born in Winnipeg. <laughs> so John Morris, if he wanted to, could kind of team up with, uh, Okay. he could join the McRuthers rank. Oh, that'd be fantastic. <laughs> so let's start that rumor. Playing lead. <laughs> playing lead. So John Morris can't play for Ontario, but he could play under this rule for Winnipeg, Manitoba, according to Wikipedia. So that's like we had. So I used to work in baseball and I worked for the team in Oklahoma City and we had a pitcher who was born in Oklahoma city and everyone made like a big deal about it. Like, Oh, this guy was born in Oklahoma city is now pitching for this team. And they asked him about it. And he was like, yeah, my parents were basically hippies and they were traveling across the country. And we were in Oklahoma city for literally a a week and I was born. And then we moved on. (laughs) Everyone, everyone was like, Oh, but it says you were born in Oklahoma city. Yeah. I was here for like all of seven days. Yeah. So I think that'll be an interesting unintended consequence is some people will have their birth rate attached to strange provinces and territories and those kind of like maybe not the top teams or even the top teams, but they may, 
you, I'm sure you'll have people exploring the rule. Like anytime you put in place a rule in competition, people are going to figure out a way to exploit it. So maybe Jamie Cooley and Kevin Cooley team up in the next Olympic cycle. And it's kind of the, the Cooley brothers just kind of come out of the territories and roll. That was something that, uh, that game of stones mentioned. And that just made me smile. The idea of Kevin representing Northwest territories and just, just dominating with, just three guys that he found at the at the local club. Just that, that might be that might be something Kevin does when he gets to be like in his in his late fifties, just for fun. Just find three, just find three guys in Northwest Territories, and then just go back to the Briar and just dominate because he can. Well, or you just do it with. I mean, plus you still got an import, so you could get one import for the residency rule, one resident. Uh, two residents and then an import. You could actually have two people out of province now, plus two people residing in province. So there you go, Kevin Cooey and John Morris representing Northwest Territories in just winning briars. Well, Johnny Moe's going back to Manitoba. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of feel like if John Morris comes back, it's for the sole purpose of basically trying to qualify for the briar through every province and territory. Well, there you go. He can be the uh, yeah. He can be Kevin Cooey's out of province player for Northwest Territories. Yeah. All right. And then, lastly, news wise, we go back to to your neck of the woods. The pants team is dead, but Tomas Olsrud still playing. In fact, he's joining up with his old rival Stefan Wallstad to join to form, I guess, a Norwegian super team. Yeah, so I didn't, yeah, hadn't even heard of this till you tipped me off about it. So it makes sense. It's not surprise. I, I kind of thought Ulcerad was done, so I'm a little bit surprised that he's coming back. But I did too. Maybe he figures with a, with a younger team in front of him that gives him a good shot to do one last Olympic run. And for Wallstad, the the advantage is obvious. You get you know the best skip in Norwegian curling history. And got a serious shot at getting the Olympics. And if you get to the Olympics, a good shot at winning a medal. So it makes sense for both parties, I'd say. Yeah, like Wallstad was probably going to represent Norway at the next Olympics. And now Wallstad is definitely going to represent Norway at the next Olympics. Yeah, and and you'll probably pick up a lot from Olsrud. Like a lot of just experience in international competition, picking up a fair bit on strategy and team dynamics. So I think it's a good move all around there. So, should we move on to next segment? Yeah, sure. Uh, I guess we're going to... Now Now it's time to, to bore everyone, right? Yep. It was going to be boring, you think? Um, yeah. I mean, I wanted to do this episode because it's something that's interesting to me, and I imagine it's interesting to no one else, but it's it's late June, and nothing is going on in curling, even though... I think the season starts like tomorrow, but because uh, there's like no, there's no off season in curling anymore. But uh, I wanted to do an etiquette episode because you know we like to talk about grassroots and growing the game, and I think etiquette is important for the growth of the game. We're getting back to our roots as a podcast here, Jonathan. Yeah, and we brought Felix on, so Felix, your job is to make etiquette exciting. That's a tall order. I mean, 
what, all right, so Felix, what did what did Jonathan teach you about etiquette when you first started becoming competitive and you and your team started working with Jonathan? What were this? What were some of the things that he told you? The little things etiquette wise that you needed to watch out for when you were playing. I think the big thing that he really tried to like hammer home was that anything you say in curling around curlers about curling and someone hears that that can be used not necessarily against you but it's something that people know that you said um i remember once we were at the world world bees and australia were having a really tough tournament and they lost a game and i went up to them and because we're friends i kind of jokingly just went oh how was the win and they kind of laughed and then jonathan pulled me aside and said you know, you can joke around like that, but you know, if you if you say that to the wrong person, because curling's such a small small group still, you know, people people kind of maybe make associations about you that you're uh, maybe a nasty person or you you, you 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 know chat about that kind of stuff a lot. So I think yeah, watching your mouth is definitely something that Jonathan Jonathan tried to hammer home with us. And and this is a sport where it's important. There's, you know, cur- curling is, I guess, a lot like golf in, you know, they're both Scottish sports. So it kind of makes sense where, you know, etiquette is a, is a big part of the game from almost from when you get to the rink to when you leave it, you know, it's about, you know, being nice and hanging out with people before the game. It's about getting there or, you know, if you're, if you're an arena club, like I am, like I'm in, you get to the rink early, you help set up the ice there's hand, there's a handshake before the before the game begins there's a handshake after the game ends and then you guys have a beer together it's kind of you know it's it's a very etiquette filled sport from beginning to end yeah definitely i think i think that's a kind of important thing that maybe you know new curlers who are coming into the sport really should understand um, is it's it's very traditional everyone's very pleasant everyone's very nice um, always offer the other team or you know your your opposing position a drink if you win after the game. No celebrations during shots. Uh, you know it, it's all you know. Keep everything fairly low key while you're playing. Felix, was that something that kind of attracted you to the sport? You know, were you uh, you know was it was the fact that it is a, a, a game of etiquette? Was that something that was a, a positive to you, or you know, as a younger person, is it kind of like something that you almost you know? So I know some people, some younger people are going to shun it because, you know, there's a lot of etiquette to remember. And it seems like, you know, the, the, the minute etiquette things when I got into curling seemed like, okay, that's for the old people. But, you know, is that something that kind of attracted you to the game? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, before I before I played curling, I played cricket, which is probably even more etiquette filled than oh, yeah. that. You know, so coming into curling, it was pretty, uh, you know, it was nice to see that it's you know everyone's very nice everyone's very pleasant um and you know it's it's you're you're never shunned you know if you miss a shot or or uh you know maybe you're you're sweeping you fall over you know it's it's, it's not you know it, it it's all very all very nice when you get when you got started what were some of the things that that you were you were taught at the beginning you know there's a difference between what Jonathan might tell you in a in a competitive uh a competitive event, but when you were starting and you were you were just learning the game, what were some of the things that were hammered home to you uh, as a new curler? I mean, yeah, when you're a new curler, you know, you're, you're taught a lot of the things that you know. If you if you if you curled for a few years now, 
are very obvious, but things that you know you, you do second nature now, like not crossing the hog line when the other team are throwing, not talking when the other team are throwing, the handshakes before and after the game, buying the opposition a drink, just the, the real basic stuff um, that's taught pretty much as soon as you start. It, it's more important than your technique and 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 how and how your you know your your strategy is. It's yeah, you know, it's taught the values of curling and then how to play it, which I think is actually a pretty good way of doing it. Jonathan, what are what are some of the little things that that maybe aren't being taught to new curlers that that need to be? What are what are some of the things that you know if if someone walks, someone's hosting a uh, a learn to curl tomorrow? What are the, some of the things that sometimes get forgotten that that need to be expressed to them in turn in terms of etiquette? Um. That's a good question. I so if I think back to like when we started the Oklahoma Curling Club, one of the things that surprised me is that there were so many little rules in curling that I wouldn't even have thought about doing. And sure enough, somebody every single week would break one of them. <laughs> so <laughs> I remember as a really good example, and part of the problem. So with an arena club, especially where you don't have many experienced curlers to start off with it can be quite difficult to get the curling culture going and so i think with the very first season there was a team there and their idea was if if the opposing player had to make a shot they would kind of jump up and down and try to distract them at the other end just like in basketball they might try to distract the the three-point shooter and because they had like no curling, uh, the free throw shooter in basketball. So just like, just like you know, they they had no experience with curling. They didn't understand that you were not supposed to try to distract the opponent when they're they're shooting at all. But in a lot of sports, that's actually completely acceptable and kind and kind of encouraged, right? So that was just something we tried to explain it to them. And I was like, because they did it against me, and they're like, "Are oh, you just saying that because you're bitter? We psyched you out, right?" <laughs> it was a bit of a a tricky situation there um another one that was interesting is um one team was kind of running another team off the scoreboard and the first team wanted to concede and the the second team said no we're not we don't want to accept your concession because we want to keep beating you because we want to kind of run the score up even further For the record, that was not my team. <laughs> was your team. No, but it was like it, it, something like that would happen basically every week, and I'd be like, "I've never seen anyone do that in curling." But I can see how, to someone who is new to curling, the idea the opponent would concede would would actually be seen as poor sportsmanship, right? They're just like, "Oh, they're being a poor sport and quitting," and they're not playing the whole game out. And trying to run up the score was seen as kind of completely normal because if you play, you know, Oklahoma's a big college football area. So, <laughs> you know, hanging 100 on your opponent's kind of par for the course. You want to, you know, I guess they were trying to get a good uh, a good posting in the coach's poll the next week or something. I don't know why the team was thinking. But, um, yeah, so, so little things like that are kind of hard to explain. And, but the thing that I kind of picked up on also when doing this is it was almost like an appreciation for why all those little rules are there. Because obviously if people start distracting people and taunting them, the kind of flow of the game gets thrown off, right? And so if, if one team's just kind of waving their arms to the far end when they throw, then what's to stop me from kind of standing next to you in the hack and telling you you're going to miss when you're about to throw, right? That it can kind of escalate 
pretty quickly until all it really is is a game of trash talk and distraction and not really a test of skill. And similarly, you know, the effect of just trying to run people off the scoreboard in curling, especially when you have a kind of a fledgling club like we did, is people may have a bad time and not come back. And so if you actually think about it, a lot of the rules, we just kind of say, well, that's just the way you do it. But actually, a lot of the rules are there for good reasons, to make sure everyone has a good time, to make sure people do come back. You know, in most curling clubs are only a couple hundred people. So if you start pissing off most of your, your club members, um, you're going to find it hard to play with people pretty quickly or get run out of the club pretty quickly. So a lot of the etiquette's there to just kind of help people get along and help the club thrive and and uh, survive long term. And also, as you kind of pointed out, a lot of it is there to keep the game going. And that's one of the things you run into when, especially if you're an arena club and you're on a time limit, you're trying your best to get eight ins in. And that's not always, that's not always easy when, um, when people are trying to are, you know, doing things like that, that, that aren't keeping the game going. Yeah. It affects the flow of the game. I mean, one of, one of my other pet peeves is some teams uh, in club play when they're playing to a clock will start slow playing to win the game. Yep. Ahead, which is also kind of bad <laughs> sportsmanship, right? So it's not as if etiquette's always kind of done properly, even at the club level, but that's, that's kind of a classic trick um you know so distraction slow playing the game trying to do stuff to win not based on skill and that's that's normally where most of the etiquette rules come from is to make sure the winner is based upon being the most skillfully executed that day not based on kind of dirty tricks or gamesmanship or psyching your opponent out here's a question for you guys so if you're getting new curlers into the game, obviously one of the ways that you keep the game going is you keep the front end between the hog lines when the other team is shooting. How much, at, at what point do you kind of ignore that and part of your goal is to get the new curlers to understand some strategy and why we're why you're doing certain things with shots and maybe have them in the house during discussions so that they're learning, you know, is there, is there a fine line between trying to teach new curlers, you know, kind of some advanced, advanced curling strategy and keeping the game moving? Do you want to answer that Felix or should I? You can, you can take it. Um, so yeah, I would say I try to just kind of play the game very quickly when I'm skipping, especially with beginners. And if they have a question, I'll, I'll say we can just talk about it after the game and explain it. That's kind of just my, my, my bias is always towards kind of faster play and trying to get all eight ends in, especially at the club level. And I think that most of the time wasting isn't really over strategy calls. If you actually watch most club play, most time is wasted because one of the people throwing takes two to three minutes to set up for their shot. They're not in position. Then they go and sit down at the kind of sideboard and either have to take their gripper off or put their slider on. And the stone's not there. Uh, and so that's that's kind of the primary culprit of slow play is players not being in position, being ready to throw. So my ideal setup for a club team is actually having kind of a skip who calls the game quickly and is pretty decisive. And then a vice who basically spends a lot of time um, kind of guiding the the new players and then two new players up front. And that's that's kind of the to me that's kind of the perfect perfect combination. 
Uh, and then basically the third's job in club play under that circumstance is really to, really to make sure that the players are kind of on task, knowing where they've got to be when they've got to be there, and kind of making sure they're playing as quickly as possible. And then ideally the third should be the one who's who's explaining you know, any rules issues or any etiquette issues or things like that. So especially when I was playing in St. Paul, I tried to bring in kind of new curlers fairly often. And I, you know, I often had like a vice who was experienced and that was kind of normally our arrangement was, um, you know, the vice would spend most of the time kind of explaining the game to the new players and making sure that they, they were picking up on the etiquette, on the strategy, but also basically knowing where to be when they had to be in a certain spot. And that's one of the things is it is tough to get to those etiquette things that speed up the game during a learn to curl because you don't want to bore them and you only have a certain amount of time for your learn to curl and you want them to get their money's worth, presuming that it's not like an open house scenario that they've, they've paid to be there. You want them to get their money's worth and throw as many rocks as possible. So taking 30 minutes to explain how to keep the game going you know, isn't good for anybody. So those are, those are things that almost have to be taught in a game scenario. You know, it's tough to say, okay, yeah, you did this learn to curl and now you're going to join the league, but we need you to come for this 30 minute class on etiquette before we get going. You know, you don't, no one really has time to do that. Um, and it's a good way to scare off new curlers probably. So yeah, it's something that has to be done during the game to let people know, you know, as soon as the other person slides out of the hack, start getting into the hack and be ready to throw. And one of the little things that our friend Ron Conlon taught me early on was if you're the lead, have the skips rock in the house ready to go for when he comes down to throw. You know, that was one of the things that I never would have thought of before if someone hadn't explained it, explained it to me the first time that, that I went through and played. Um, what are you know, is that something that just has to happen during the game or is there a way to get those things through to, to new players um, without, without slowing down, you know, their first couple of games, basically. I I think that's the, I think it's actually best if they just pick that up through the course Mm -hmm. of playing. And so I know that a lot of clubs and we've even done this here in England uh, do set up beginner leagues and in one sense, that's good because everyone feels comfortable playing with people of their own level. But the trade-off is often a lot of the etiquette and, and finer points about where to be when aren't really picked up. Because mm-hmm. it's, it's, in a certain sense, the blind leading the blind. Yep. Unless you have time for coaches to stand at either end and kind of pick up on the little minor details. So, you know, I mean, that's basically how I picked all those things up over the years. And to be honest, it's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot to think about in a curling game. Right, even even just the club level, there's a lot of little things to pick up on. Not just in terms of how to win the game, but just how to read ice, how to communicate things, what to say to your teammates, when to say it, where to stand, uh, and it takes years to pick that up. Uh, so that's the the best. That's why we really think the best format for it is to bring new players on the front end, and they kind of pick it up through playing and but then the key is really having one player on that team who knows it's their job to bring the the one or two new players on that team along and it really can't be the skip because it skips standing at the other end and managing a lot of other things so ideally on a club team with new players either the third or second depending on the team really takes that on as their job and that the third is it's even more important that they be quite frankly a nice person because part of, 
I think etiquette extends to the veterans who are teaching the game as well, because the last thing you want is to get mad or get snippy with the new players just because they're not following, you know, just because there's an etiquette violation because they don't know they're new to the sport. It's up to you to teach them. If they're failing, you're the reason why. Um, so explaining it to them and not being a jerk is really important because you want them to come back. You want them to stay in the, to stay in the league. Um, and you want them to pick up, to pick up on etiquette, um, kind of naturally. So how Felix would, did you ever run into that when you were coming in? Did you ever run into someone who was kind of, you know, not exactly, um, teaching you etiquette in the, in, in the proper manner, manner when you started curling? Um, I, maybe a couple times, maybe like the league nights. I, I don't think it was, you know, people becoming snappy. I think it was more that sort of condescending, uh, tone that sometimes gets used, you know, towards new curlers, you know, um, and it can be, you know, basic things, you know, well, remember stand there, that, that sort of, that kind of attitude towards it. Um, but for the most part, I think, think people are pretty good even if they've only been curling for a year themselves maybe that's even better if you're new to the sport you know because you can you you can relate to what they're going through as well um so yeah you you rarely find that kind of i wouldn't say hostility but but kind of being being a bit of a bit of a to the new curlers that that rarely happens but it's that sort of maybe it's the people who become a bit more confident start to become a bit cocky um and sort of teaching the new curlers they, they think they can say what they want and, and kind of get away with a couple of cheap shots um but yeah so it's it's something that i think each all clubs could improve on but i think the the sort of the way of teaching curling to new people uh, the, the etiquette rules is is pretty good at the moment jonathan how much of that have you run into as you've been helping start leagues uh and help get arena clubs up around the u.s and help get curling uh help advance curling there in england i think it depends on the location so to be honest the oklahoma curling club was the hardest just because we were starting a club from nothing and we had initially we had six experienced curlers the first night in 70 i think well i guess 66 inexperienced curlers so the ratio of experienced and inexperience was kind of completely out of whack. And so there it was really hard to just try and explain really basic things to people when there's only six people who've done it before. And a lot of other people are coming in with their perceptions of how they do things from playing other sports, right? So that that was the trickiest one. I think in England, it's pretty easy just because the, the rink's pretty well established and new curlers coming in tend to be outnumbered by experienced curlers. So it, it seems to be kind of pretty, uh, pretty well established in some senses, but there's a lot of little things to be honest that haven't, that, that are different in well Scottish curling even compared to Canadian curling. So even I had to learn some of the kind of subtleties of etiquette uh, in the UK as compared to North America. Oh, you got to go into detail on that. Um, like little things. So one of the, so one of the things that's really funny is I remember my first league game here. Um, I was playing playing a league game and I was down like three without hammer, with an end to play, and you know in a North American game, 
even the club level person is going to try and start throwing things through or hitting just to kind of keep it clean. Right. I just, and first I was playing against was a, a pretty experienced curler and they decided to throw up a center guard with their first shot. And I was like, what? Like, like I'd never seen anyone do that. And as I came around and I actually ended up being able to draw the game. And I kind of asked that person afterwards, why didn't they play defensively? Cause I was basically dead. And she said to me, well, that would be really unsporting. So it's actually in club play here seen as unsporting to try to play for the win. Interesting. If that makes sense. Whereas in Canada, any club game, it'd just be like, you're up, you kind of blitz them, it's over. It's rare in club play here to concede the, the match early. That's also seen as kind of poor form. Although it, if it's a real bad blow, both teams agree it's fine. Whereas, you know, in Canada, if it's over in four ends, it's over in four ends. Let's get to the bar. Um, let's see. Uh, there's a lot more emphasis on point styles here as opposed to win-loss. So I think that has part of the effect of it. There's little subtle things like um, in Scotland, especially, each player has a specific task. Uh, so, uh, the second, cause I'm often playing second when I'm playing up, up in Scotland and spiels, the second supposed to fill out the scorecard every end. So at most rinks in Scotland, whenever you're playing at a bond spiel, the team is handed a scorecard and they've got to bring that scorecard back to the, the bond spiel master, a bit like a, a scorecard in golf. So there's like a little chart for each end. You're supposed to put down the score for each end, sign it and turn it in, even in kind of pretty relaxed bond spiels. Whereas... In North America, that's often not the case. And so it's the second's job. And I was playing second and all weekend, and I got chewed out by the rink manager for not filling out the scorecard. And I said, honestly, I never heard that <laughs> that rule in my life <laughs> anywhere. So it is kind of very specific Scottish kind of rule. Um, let me think of other ones that are odd. Uh, so the stones in Scottish rinks especially finish wherever the game finishes. So... If, if so, if, if let's say you finish at an odd number and the stones are down there, the next team comes on and starts throwing towards home. So I, I grew up my entire life with the stones are always brought back home at the end, regardless of the score, but I just leave it there. And so that, that kind of threw me off too, because I've kind of intuitively for, you know, 25 plus years, just kind of been used to whichever direction I'm going. And I know if it's an even or an odd end, but I'll often get caught out by that here. I've got to kind of pay attention. Um, in Canada, especially, the third of the team that scores is supposed to hang the score on the board. That's never done in Scotland. People just kind of do, whoever wants to do it puts it up. And the other thing that's interesting about hanging the score, in Canada, I was always taught it's really rude if you're blowing a team out to put the score up. So let's say you're like winning 10 to 1 after four ends. Like, let's say you start off winning 6-1. If you score a four-point end to kind of pile on the pain, you often just wouldn't put that score up. But in Scotland or in the UK, you're supposed to put the score up every end all the time. It's seen as rude to not do that. So it's it was those little subtle things, right, which don't seem like much. And in a certain sense, they both have their reasonings behind them, but they're different from place to place. I think the other reason that etiquette is so important in curling is we don't have on-ice officials. It's a, it's a very unique sport in that you're not being officiated. And again, it's very Scottish that way, right? You know, golf even a major tournament, you know, they're, they're watching you, but you have to call your own fouls and you have to report that when you, when you turn in your scorecard. Um, but that's also where you, the, the breaches in etiquette can kind of almost borderline on cheating, right? When you're trying to take advantage of the fact that there are no officials on the ice. 
Yeah, that definitely does happen. And it can happen like both ways. So uh, we had one, I think one of the big things that comes up often in club play is concern about the hog line, especially if you're a more competitive player and you're playing a team that's a bit less competitive, say, and you've got players in your team that can slide to or past the hog line. That can often rattle a less competitive team. And I've seen teams get quite obsessed about hog lines. And so one of the things that, it's kind of interesting and counterintuitive. I think that's, I think often um, not done properly is if you're not playing in an officiated situation, it's really on the team you're playing against to call their own foul. And so you may be frustrated at a team sliding over the hog line, but unless there's an umpire there or something to do with kind of the hog line rules, then it's really up to that team to declare they, they delivered over the hog line or not. And so I, I've actually seen the reverse situation where we were playing and someone was kind of upset that one of our players could slide quite far. And the team then said, that stone's coming off because you were over the hog line. And it was you're never supposed to kind of call that. If you go look at the rule book, you're not supposed to pull another opponent's stone. The best you can do is say, were you sure it was over the hog line or not? And that kind of led to a bit of a, an argument back and forth because our player said, honestly, I don't think I was. And that player's not... Um, the kind of person who would would lie about that. But that's kind of an interesting kind of counterpoint to the etiquette. So you're supposed to call your own fouls, but you're also not supposed to be calling fouls on the opponent because otherwise you very quickly end up in this situation where you're kind of arguing with people about what was or wasn't done. Obviously, the biggest one in curling is burned rocks, right? Yep, burned rocks is another big one. We actually had an incident about that, right? Way back... Back in the day in Kansas City, Ryan, do you remember that? Or not? Yeah, we. Uh, oh, yeah, I try to forget that one, Jonathan. Why is I try to forget my losses. <laughs> Why is that? What's that? Because we lost because of it. Yeah, because we lost. We did lose. So it was it, it, all right. It was completely fair. Like what 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 happened was completely fair, and then we wound up losing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we ended up losing. So was, I remember our teammate Rusty was quite upset because uh, we Yeah, he was mad at you. <laughs> they, they burned the rock on their last shot. Um, and I could have pulled it, and I didn't. <laughs> and Rusty, I think, and that's Rusty. Then burning it didn't affect it. I know it did affect it. No, it did not really. Yeah, no, because no, they were it drawing. They were. No, no, they would have they would have taken us out, and then it would have, they would have won the game, and then I had a shot, right? No, they, no, they, they won. They were no, they had to draw to the paint. Yeah, he burned it. It wound up in the certain. It wound up in the oh, yeah. in the house. Yeah, in the, so house. The, the burn did not affect the rock. The burn didn't affect the outcome of the shot, but it affected the outcome of the game. So I'm like, no, and then I had to make a takeout, and a takeout yeah. on arena ice is an adventure always. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. it did not go no, well. The burn, did, the, burn affect, the burn did not affect the shot. No. So it was obviously you're supposed to let the the, the shot stay because that it was going to wind up in the house anyway. But then it it forced us to to make a takeout, which we which on it's on Kansas minus. City's ice in <laughs> in August is difficult. By the way, that's a that's a fantastic bond spiel. If you're looking for a bond spiel this summer, go to Kansas City in August. It is amazing. Um. But the ice is going to be 
a challenge yeah <laughs> as it was for you on that on that shot yeah the, the ice is interesting so felix have you ever had a situation where the opponents burned a stone and you've had to decide what to do with it yeah i had a really bad or kind of weird incident it was at the uh the national school championships and there we we called a measure and and this was my my first season i'd been curling for six weeks and uh the the other team put the measure down the umpire came over i think um and, and said you guys have to do the measure and so we did and i couldn't tell which one was closer and then i thought right now i'll ask the umpire looked up and then I had another look at the stones and their stone was way closer in towards the middle, like noticeably closer. Um, And I'm positive to this day that they kicked it closer, but I didn't say anything until after the match uh, where I went up to the the person running the whole thing and said, I think they burnt it. And then I think my word was taken uh, to be true. And then they, disqualified the the team for from from the rest of the game and they got all angry and it kind of kicked up a bit of arguing between the parents of should i have called it there and then which i should have done um should they have been disqualified and it was it was a bit messy um but yeah i think i think that was if they did kick it was i mean seriously seriously dishonest um and i'm 100 percent sure that they did but obviously no cameras, nothing, nothing like that. So, I guess we will never know for sure. Um, but it, it's one of those things where, and 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 it was technically their fault because it wasn't the third who was in the house. It was the the skip, the third, and the lead all standing around the stone. Um, which which was another thing which kind yeah, of swayed there's another the, piece the of decision. There's another yeah, piece of editing for you, right? <laughs> when a measurement is going on, if you are not the third, get far far yeah. away from the house. Yeah. Get, I mean, yeah, you get far, yeah. far away from the house. And this reminds me of my other pet peeve is don't put your broom on the ice. I don't know why people put their brooms on the ice. <laughs> yeah, I hate that. I hate it's, that so much. <laughs> don't, don't do it. It's dangerous. People could trip on it. And it's actually the one way you could actually burn this. Well, not the only way you could burn the stone, but you could actually burn the stone. If you put the broom on the ice, someone comes along, kicks that broom up against the stone. Then you've displaced the stone. So I don't know why people do that, but that's dumb. So don't do that. And it should be. As soon as, as, soon as it's close <laughs> for a measure, everyone should just be past the hog line, in my mind, apart from the two people measuring. And if there's an ump, the ump. And it's just between those two, and they just do the measure, and then you can resolve everything afterwards. Because honestly the, honestly, the times where I've seen someone burn a stone that was a counter is because there's too many people in the house. And, so, and, and basically, there's more people in there kind of talking about it, and people get confused about what has been agreed on and what hasn't been agreed on. And so it's to your detriment if you're not third to be there, because I think all you can possibly do is mess it up. So just go away if there's a measure on. All right. So, Jonathan, do you want to go over the burned rock rule since we've, we've been talking about it here for a little bit, both in terms of shot uh, rocks that are that are in motion and then when you're in a measurement uh, situation go over because I'm sure this is confusing for a lot of people. Jonathan, what is the burned rock rule? Okay. So I'll go off the world curling federation rule book. Uh, It may vary from federation to federation, but it's pretty much the same principle. 
So it's rule R8. And so it doesn't say burned rock. It's called a touched moving stone. So technically, a burned stone is a touched moving stone. And so the first thing to understand is it can happen in three different ways. So the first one's between the T line at the delivery end and the hog line at the playing end. So to understand why those are the two kind of points is that as soon as a stone in a delivery crosses the T line, it's considered in play. And then as soon as it crosses the hog line, that's when it's in kind of scoring position. So the first zone is basically what I'd call the delivery zone for lack of a better, better term. Then the second zone is after the hog line at the playing end until the back end. Okay. So if the stone is burned, that means if somebody touches it, if it's sweeping or one of the players from the delivering team touches it between the T line at the delivery end and the hog line at the playing end or the scoring end, then that stone is supposed to be immediately removed from play. Okay, so a lot of people, what I see now is they'll burn a stone midway down the ice and they'll kind of keep playing and then they'll declare the foul uh, at the far end after it's come to rest. And that's technically in violation of the rule. So if you burn the stone as a sweeper or fall down and touch the stone in between before the hog line, the stones are supposed to come to play and there's no debate about it whatsoever. So there's no, no dispute there under any kind of circumstance. I've actually seen some high-level players make that mistake too. So if, even have it happen on TV. But, but it, honestly, if you burn the stone, you're supposed to stop it from play, from kind of crossing the hog line. Then the next one is from the hog line in until, it's, until the kind of end of play. And so there, you're supposed to, if you burn the stone, you're supposed to declare the foul, but let the stone come to rest. And let all the stones come to rest. And then... The skip is then of the opposing team is then given a decision. And it's, it's actually is the skip. It's pretty clear in the rule book. So the skip then can either let the stones fall where they may, like where they've ended up. They can remove the burn stone from play and reset everything back to where it was prior to the burn. Or they can put the stones where they thought they would have ended up had there not been a burn stone. Right, So the way the rule is written is that the non-offending team shouldn't ever be penalized as a consequence of a burnt stone. Okay, So that's kind of important to emphasize there is that the non-offending team should never suffer a penalty as a result of a burnt stone. So one of the reasons that rule is there is that, and this, is, this was the Twitter question that came up from Amanda. She was asking uh, at the Tulsa Curling Club, she asked what happens if the team intentionally burns a stone to protect their stones. So they're the sweeping team. Their stone is kind of wildly off path and they may take their own stones out or make situation worse. So they decide to burn the stone and then say, oh, it's burned. Uh, so we're, we're not going to, so the outcome's not going to happen. So basically stop a bad consequence happening to you. And the reason the burn rule is set up the way it is is to stop exactly that situation from happening. So some teams have, and I've, I've had it happen once or twice where teams tried to take advantage of me kind of doing that, but it's, it's kind of rare, but it does happen. So the key then is that actually in that circumstance, if the non-offending team could say, actually that stone was going to take yours out. So that's, that's the result we would like. So that's how that rule is supposed to be kind of applied in that circumstance. And the third thing is what happens if a moving stone is touched either by the other team or by some kind of 
external force. And in that case, you can actually, that's one of the few cases in curling where you can actually request a redeliver of the stone. Or again, kind of the, the burned rock rule applies in reverse also. But actually, let's say you're sweeping, I slip on the ice and burn the stone. You then could actually have the right to redeliver your stone because the opposing team kind of blocked it along the way. So those are kind of the classic burned rock scenarios. I think the important thing to keep in mind is that you've got to declare the foul. You, it's really on you to declare that you did kind of burn the stone when you when you did it. Otherwise, you are cheating. So I think that's the, kind of the main point there. And then to make be aware of the difference between a stone being burned before the hog crosses the hog line and after it crosses the hog line. So if a team burns the rock on purpose before it gets to the hog line, what happens? Under the rule book, actually... Um, they're supposed to move from play. Okay. So you, so if you, so there's really like, you're just a jerk, but burning, yeah, the, I guess you burning, the rock, burning the rock on purpose before it gets to the hog line actually has no repercussions other than, other than scorn. Other than scorn. I think, I, I guess the, the only situation I could see that happening in is if someone was really not a good team. And so, so far off the target, the stone had no shot before it crossed the hog line. Right. And was also simultaneously good enough at communication that they <laughs> they knew to do that. So that would be some high level. That would be some high level stuff. But I feel like I've seen it happen before on it arena ice. Does on arena ice. But I think I think it would to me be like the impressive combination of terrible skill, but also amazing kind of knowledge of angles and communication to burn it. It's, I think it's kind of an unlikely Venn diagram there. You have a really good skip in three, who is also a jerk and three <laughs> not good teammates. <laughs> it's pretty much what you have to have there, right? <laughs> yeah. Which I guess, as you said, on arena curling could happen, but it seems unlikely, but you have found a way to exploit the rules, Ryan. Yes. I, I always do. <laughs> all right, here. All right, so here's here's another one that comes up a lot with new curlers, um, and that I see a decent amount. Uh, someone comes out of the hack with, uh, and they forget to remove their gripper. Um, to me, etiquette says let them rethrow the rock. What does the rule book say? Like, what is is it the is is it the end line or is it the near T line that the rock that if you if you're able to keep the rock from going past which of those lines means that you can legally rethrow the rock? Like, if you have a situation like that happen, if you stop the stone from crossing the delivery T line, literally you can rethrow the stone. But I think you're right. And that actually is covered in the rule book. Like basically if both skips agree, that's actually one of the key rules. If both skips agree, then most of the rules in the rule book don't apply. Like a skip can kind of wave off uh, just about any rule. And that actually happens, you know, not, not super rarely, you know, like, so exactly in that situation, you've got a new curler, they've, you know, fallen down, the stone's gone firing away, you know, under most circumstances, I think most skips would, Say, let's just get an mulligan there. No problem, right? Yep. But for more advanced people, they should know that um, they've got to stop the stone before across the T-line. So that's the that's the rule for that. Yep. And there's, I mean, there's a lot of things like that. 
you know, if you're an arena club like I am, you don't have a competitive league and a non-competitive league because you just don't have the ice time. If you're in a big club that has dedicated ice, you might have a dedicated league where you're following the WCF or USCA rulebook to a T. But in when, when you have a league that you're, you're working on expanding your club, you're working on getting new curlers uh, acclimated to the sport, a lot of the rules kind of need to go out the window, right? And you have to follow, you, know, you have to rely more on etiquette, right? Yeah, you've got to rely more on etiquette. You've got to rely on, you know, using your judgment. But also, I think in those cases, making it clear what the rule is. And a lot of a lot more rules are going to be broken by newbies, just because that's the way it is. So oh, a yeah. lot of patience with more experienced curlers, the key. Actually, I've, I talked about like how every single broken, how every single rule in the rule book kind of got broken in the first six weeks. And on on top of like a lot of the etiquette rules, um, <laughs> the one rule that I'd never seen broken before that we broke in week three was the broken stone rule. So do you know what the broken stone rule is? First of all, <laughs> what happens when a stone breaks? Felix, do you know? Isn't it? It's the bigger half of the stone, wherever that lies, is yes. the legitimate place. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And so when we were doing our circle in the curling club, we had two draws back to back. And it's probably about four or five weeks in. And I, I basically felt like things had got to a point where I could step away. And a friend said, let's just go to the bar, the pub nearby during the second draw, relax, and we'll come back for teardown because I wasn't playing in the second draw. So we go to the pub. And like 30 minutes in, I got a text message, Jonathan, a stone broke. What do we do? <laughs> <laughs> and I thought it was a joke. But no, sure enough, we, we kind of had used curling stones. And one of the ones had somehow gotten damaged in transit. And not a huge chunk, but a, a, a large enough chunk that the, the strike band kind of came off. So it's not, it wasn't playable anymore after that. It fell off the it stone. Was a decent, it, was, it was a decent amount of that rock. It was a decent <laughs> amount of the rock. And then they were kind of like, oh, what do we do? And I was like, oh, I've, I've, this is a rule in the rule book that I've always wanted to apply. So we, we actually did end up with a broken stone. I think it resides now yep. in Ron's uh, living room in Ottawa. Yep. So. And it... it uh, yeah, like you said, they were used stones. They were actually very heavily used stones. Um, they weren't old just in the sense that they're granite, so they're millions. So it's clearly millions of years old. They were old in that they had been used for curling for quite a long time. Um, and not just that, they were blue hone, which blue hone stones um, are great like running surfaces they run like a dream but um they're very susceptible to the situation that we had come up there in week three of the curling club was the striking bands aren't um you know aren't aren't as uh aren't as hardy <laughs> no i mean we, we, we bought them on discount right so uh <laughs> it was just funny to see what i mean so i i'm not sure if every single i've encountered every single rule mm. in the rule book but i always knew being broken but I always knew that rule and I kind of always wanted to see it apply. Uh, and in my mind, it would have applied with someone throwing like crazy, you know, takeout weight. But in this case, apparently it was actually a really soft tap and it just went bop, bop and just gave way. So there you go. Um, right. Yeah. Other right, questions? So we'll, we'll, uh, well, I mean, we'll kind of begin to wrap up here, but I'll kind of say, you know, going away from the rule book, what are a couple of etiquette things that are important that aren't necessarily 
in the rule book. And I'll give you an example. One of the things that as a new curler, I didn't find out until, gosh, probably almost a year and a half into playing before someone finally told me about this was where you carry your broom when you're following the rock and not sweeping. You don't want to be holding it over the path of the stone, obviously, because the other team is going to think that you're you're dumping to try and to try and slow down the rock. That was something that no one told me until I'd been playing for like a year and a half. Was that Ron that told you that? Yes. Yeah, I said Ron. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, we could do a whole episode on how to cheat at curling too. <laughs> <laughs> Which, I mean, it might actually get some listens, unlike etiquette. It might get some, yeah, listens. I, I, let's put it this way: having been around the clubs a lot, I've learned lots of the tricks. I don't use them, but it's useful to know what they are to spot them when they're being used against you. So, dumping, I think, is less effective with synthetic brooms. But back in the day, with yeah. kind of either corn or horsehair brooms, especially. You could actually get a fair bit of debris up in your brush, and then if you just wanted to shake it loose uh, in front of the slide path, uh, you could perhaps cause a stone to stop curling, right? And that's the the burned rock rule. Basically, is there for similar reasons that there were, you know, you asked around back in the day, back in the fifties and sixties, especially some some teams knew that if you just kind of caught the edge of the stone at the right moment you take just enough speed off to get it to stop where you want it to stop right so that's that's kind of that kind of cheating the the burned rock rule was put in there to stop that specific kind of cheating at the the higher level of the game i'm trying to think of other ones like that i think have you had a, have you ever had have you had something like ha- that happen to you Felix or something that you didn't re- even realize could be construed as cheating but just no one took the time to tell you about until it was too late? Uh no, I don't think I don't think cheating necessarily. I mean, uh some of the more hidden etiquette rules maybe, you know, which you're taught about later on which you didn't even realize you were doing. Um my favorite example of this involves Jonathan. Uh, we are playing <laughs> oh, a game against great. him. Jonathan makes an okay double takeout, <laughs> turns around to us and just screams, <laughs> yeah, baby! You know, <laughs> loud as hell. <laughs> Which, you know, I, I, you know, yeah, that, that, that for me uh, was one of those things which you, you're not taught about straight away. Um, but definitely celebrating your shots, especially to that degree, for a pretty easy lined up double takeout, um, <laughs> you know, isn't you know, yeah. <laughs> well, those are the only doubles Jonathan can make. The easy, one. yeah, exactly. Gotta get you. Gotta be perfectly lined up. Well, every double's perfectly lined up if you make it. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, well, that's interesting, right? So that's, I would say two things that have kind of come up. We talked, so one, you're celebrating your shot and actually do you pull the opponent's stone when they burn it are both kind of interesting debates that have popped up in even the elite play, right? So the controversy about Holman at the 2018 Olympics, when she pulled the burn stone by Denmark in a situation not dissimilar from us playing in the Kansas City Von Spiel, but obviously with far greater stakes at play. Um, oh, hey, that that the the winner of that Kansas City Bond Spiel got 
um, some very good barbecue sauce, Jonathan. So let's not completely unequate the Kansas City bond spiel from the Olympics. Which is better than either Denmark or Canada got from the Olympics, right? So there's no barbecue sauce for not making the playoffs. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, that's an interesting question because under the rules, if you apply the rules strictly, then Holman was completely within her rights to pull that stone, right? But it's kind of evolved as an unwritten etiquette rule that you don't do that. And Schuster was also kind of accused at uh, as part of the 2016 World Championship of also interpreting the rule in a way that gave his team an advantage. But he didn't burn the stone, and the interpretation that he applied was completely within the rules of the game. So what's interesting to me is that etiquette and sometimes is kind of read by curlers as demanding more than what the black letter of the rule book says. I'm, I'm not entirely convinced that it should be. That's I don't think in either case that Holman or Schuster did anything wrong. So I wasn't kind of personally offended in either case, but there certainly were a lot of curlers on social media in the stands that were offended that they did pull stones or, or kind of set things up when they didn't have to. Yeah. So I guess my point's this. So, some of the things that are seen as being bad etiquette aren't necessarily violating the rules. So technically under the rules, if a team burns a stone, then you're completely within your rights under the rule book to pull that stone. But in elite curling for, well, in all kind of curling now, it seems to have developed as a norm that you're not supposed to do that. But that kind of raises a set of interesting questions. Maybe we get into some other time, but certainly the backlash against Holman in 2018 well, and again, Schuster back in 2016, I think, kind of points to that fact that there's a, almost a higher level demand than what the rule book says in terms of curling etiquette. And the one about kind of cheering a shot is kind of interesting because I think we certainly watch um, elite curling now. A lot of players do kind of celebrate big shots. And certainly being on TV, I think a lot of TV people want to see emotion. They don't want... The Kevin Cooey, I just made a quad, no reaction. They actually want the Mike McEwen, Brad Jacobs scream up and down when you make a big shot kind of reaction. So it'll be curious to see if that's changing or not. I think that's a little different because they have crowds. So you've got crowds making noise, appreciating a great shot. So I think in that case, I think in that case, I'm definitely okay with a, a little bit of celebrating because you're not. I mean, the the crowd cheering is going to affect the other sheets. Whereas if you make a shot like that in an empty curling club celebrating like that might have an effect on the other sheets, but with, with the crowd cheering, obviously everyone else is going to know that something, something kind of cool has obviously happened on another sheet. Yeah. It could vary from club play to professional play for sure. But there's certainly part of a backlash against the Jacobs team was that they were really loud when they made shots in games. And that if you go back you know, 20 years and watch old Briar tape, that was certainly found upon even by the, the top players, right? So that's, yeah. that's I would say, a developing trend in curling and curling etiquette. And whether that translates down to the club level or not uh, is a kind of interesting and ongoing question. What about you, Felix? Are you pro or, or con on, uh, on professional players in a, in an arena setting, uh, making a shot like that, are you pro or con celebrations? I I get it if it's for the win or it's digging you out of a big hole. But you know, if you're making an impressive shot for one in the third end, 
there's no need to you know <laughs> to jump up and start screaming um but you know if you're making a an in off double to win the olympics for example then yeah go ahead uh i think i think it's it's, it's when you use that the ability to to act like a bit of a moron after you've made a good shot. Uh, <laughs> isn't, you know, you gotta, isn't being Team Sugden a bigger prize than winning the Olympic gold medal? I think being Team Sugden, you know, just uh, it's it, it's an honor basically to be a part of the team. Um, no, but me beating you with that shot. Uh, oh, whoa, 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 whoa! No, no, no! That was that was not for the win. Um, I, I I seem to remember us beating you after that because we were so angered by your reaction. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, that's a good point, right? That if you celebrate too much or say something a bit too lippy, then you could give your opponents... Uh, some bulletin board material, so you got to watch it too, right? Yeah, exactly. And then you know, after the game, in the club room, after a couple of beers, then, then you know, you can uh, you can you can make your points a bit more uh, vividly. Then, see, I, I I'm not a big fan of gloating after the game, but you know, I, I think it's all right to to you know celebrate in the moment it, if it's an honest kind of joyous release are you sure about that shot? Great shot. <laughs> <laughs> all i've heard from you after you beat us in the uh, local kent and sussex competition in the final uh is you know you you do like to bring that up quite a lot i don't think i've brought it up at all <laughs> right okay <laughs> sure yeah <laughs> I'm pretty sure you've brought that up on this podcast. Yeah, times, <laughs> that's true. It was, it was the highlight of the year. It was up there. <laughs> All right, so I think we're gonna we're gonna wrap up here. So just real quick, uh, as we get out of here, uh, I'll ask I'll ask both of you, kind of what are what you know what's the one thing that you kind of wish more new curlers knew, or like what's what's like one kind of kind of key etiquette thing that that you know, is, isn't an obvious one that maybe we should be teaching new curlers for me or for Felix, both of you. Uh, I'll go first. So Felix can have a second to think about yeah. it. <laughs> so one obvious, one not obvious thing and you have to edit this out as I think too. Um, I think one not obvious thing is pace of play that that also is an etiquette issue. So teaching new curlers, to basically be ready to throw when it's their turn to throw and then knowing where to stand when it's not their turn to flow. If you can get, if you can kind of drill that into new curlers, the way they play the game, that'll have a very positive effect across the club. So that would be one of the points that I would emphasize with new curlers. Yeah. I think, I think for me uh, it's uh, kind of to do with speed of play, but clearing up the stones at the end of the end, um, you know, just, just, kick a couple to the back, something like that. Um, I, I'm not a big fan when the skip finishes the end, comes down, talks to the team, then goes away. You know, if everyone should pitch in, move the stones to the back, and then you can start playing a lot quicker as well, um, which you know, uh, is a good, good thing to get in the habit of. Uh, mine, honestly, is kind of a pace of play thing too. And it's, uh, you know, if you're the lead, you know, have your, have your skips rock ready to go when he gets down. Mm. Yeah, I think yeah. that's a good one too. 
Right. So space of play is kind of a big point. Yep. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> it's because it's, well, it's, it's not an obvious teaching thing when you're going through a learn to curl because you just don't have time to do it. It's something you got to teach kind of in the in the flow of the game, and sometimes that's hard to do. Yeah, for sure. So I think, I think that's the kind of the key points there is pace of play. Uh, and I think also kind of disrespect for your opponents and being honest when you burn a stone. I think those are the three kind of big takeaway points i'd say and uh i'll I'll leave with one of the the etiquette situations that was actually sent to us on twitter uh we kind of asked people you know what are what are some examples of good etiquette that you've seen you know a lot of people tend to harp on on the negative you know oh i can't believe what that guy did during my game you know last tuesday but what I, i asked for some good ones uh, some good examples. And one of the things that that curling geek sent us was a spiel in 2017. Uh, one team already had the game won uh, and elected with hammer not to throw uh, when they were sitting seven. So they, they opted not to take the eight ender. They opted not to attempt the eight ender because the game was, the game was effectively over. That's pretty good. Yeah. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I would have had. I'm not sure. I would have been able to do that. I think I might have gone for it. Yeah, I've never had a shot for an eight ender, so I might have been tempted to. <laughs> All right. What, what about you, Felix? Would you? Would you? Would you have thrown the rock in that situation? Oh yeah, hundred percent. I'm not. I'm not going to pass up on an eight ender opportunity. Um, All right, so yeah. <laughs> so kudos to whatever team that was that that opted not to throw the eight ender. That takes that's a you know that that that's big of them. That's, yeah, yeah. That is some that is some self control. So congrats to them. Um, <laughs> so thank you everyone. Thank you everyone for listening, and uh, thank you so much, Felix, for for coming on. Um, and and good luck to you this upcoming season. I hope you can overcome overcome Jonathan's coaching and, and have a successful season. Uh, yeah. We appreciate you having, we appreciate you coming on. Thank you for having me. That was a lot of fun. All right. All right. Uh, and thank all of you for, for getting this far into a podcast about curling etiquette. We hope we didn't bore you too much. Uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Uh, I'm not sure when the summer has been kind of crazy. Um, so hopefully we'll have the opportunity to record again. Uh, here before curling season uh, gets underway. But uh, you can find us at rocksacrossthepond.com. That's where we post all of our episodes, and hopefully Jonathan will have some some blogs when he's when he's thinking about it. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Curling Podcast. You can find us on Instagram. You can find us on Facebook. Uh, please, uh, if you haven't, uh, please go in and subscribe and leave a review. That's how other people find us and the the main way that people find us and the biggest compliment we can receive is if you've enjoyed the podcast and you tell a friend about it. So uh, thank you again for listening and we will uh, talk to you again soon.